Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. Security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years' experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey local provider. I also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. We're excited to have you listen to our show today. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. You can also go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a uh, podcast button on the right-hand side. You can go check that out, and uh, you can catch up from uh, past sessions. We have it organized into different topics. Obviously, 1230 a.m. is the local dial, and we also have a way to stream it. Top right-hand corner, you can uh, click a button, and you can listen to it uh, live Saturday mornings, 9 to 10. Yeah, no no excuse for not listening to us on Saturday morning or whenever you want to. Just right off the podcast there. We, we put those podcasts up on about Tuesday of each week from the Saturday show, and uh, they're, they're listed there by topic, so you can go back and listen to all of them. So a great way to listen to The Money Doctors. And you can reach us directly at info at moneymd.net. We'd love to have your questions, and also you can link to us there on our website, moneymd.net. Well, I think we have an awesome show lined up here today, John. Um, interesting stuff, very timely stuff. You know, one of the things we're going to talk about that we're starting off on is 12 ways to protect your money online. Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. You know, it just, just can't be more important than protecting your money. And everybody's online for everything now, paying your bills, doing your banking. And so you gotta you got to pay attention to how to protect that, and we got the answers for you right here. Yeah, so stick around. That's going to be a fantastic uh, discussion there. And then we're going to follow that up with um, an article out of uh, Marketing Pro, and it talks about money habits that may help you become wealthier. Steve, this is pretty good. It talks yep. about habits that, um, as we look out there, what some families are doing to make good decisions and smart decisions with your money. So we'll dive into that. We have a couple really good tips in that one. That's a good one, like the uh, you know millionaire next door type. Habits, That's right. right? Yep. Those are good. And then we're going to finish up with the pension buyout offer. These seem to be more and more prevalent nowadays. And so the question is, do you take the money and run? Take the money and run. Like the, the Steve, Steve Miller, Miller band. Yeah, we're going to queue up that song here when we get to that segment, and uh, that's a good one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is really, really important. You're going to get these offers if you have an old pension out there eventually. And, you know, that offer to buy out your pension for a lump sum, you got to be real careful, and you got to weigh the, the pros and cons of that. We're going to talk about those. we got the answers right here, so stay tuned for that as well. Okay, we're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from Third Way, and it uh, talks about student loans. 63% of students that enroll each year in a four-year college, they take out some student loans to finance their education. So more than half the people um, you know, that, uh, that go to school, go to college, have student loans. I believe the stats are around $30,000 is what they graduate with. So if you have a... Six or seven percent interest rate. You know, you're going to be paying four to six hundred dollars, depending on what the interest rate is per month 
That's a big number. Yeah, I've sent, sat down with people before that had over a hundred thousand dollars of mm-hmm, student loans mm-hmm. before, and I'm sure you have too, John. And I mean, that is a devastating thing to start off your career with. So you have to be careful. You have to make some smart decisions. You know, should you go locally for a couple years to avoid the big student loan? Um, is the degree you're getting worth? The amount of money that you're going to have to pay for it and the loan that you're going to have tagged to that degree mm-hmm. later on. Yeah, make sure you're you getting know, a good income on the other side. Exactly. And are you going to a college that, that's the best value for, for the degree that you're trying to get? You know, I mean, maybe you should just go locally or maybe you should go at least in state. So you got to look at all those options and, and don't just automatically take the big loan just because it's offered to you. Yeah, there are ways to go through college without student loans. So exactly. have, have your student work is an option as well. But I, th- I like going locally. That's a that's a great option for a lot of people, really some really good schools around this area, certainly. It really is. Okay, well, great financial fact of the week. And that leads up to our first topic here, and that is the 12 ways to protect your money online. This is really, really important. This is an article out of Malwarebytes. Um, which is one of the antivirus mm-hmm. type software mm-hmm. companies, and Wendy Samora is the author, and uh, that we're basing this on. And you know, I mean, but gone are the days of balancing your checkbooks with a calculator and pencil for most people, mm-hmm. right? I know, you know, your your parents probably still do it that right, way. Right, if they, right, right. There they, are some people, right? If they balance their checkbook, the truth is, most people don't balance their checkbook, right? But if they do, you know, they pencil they, and paper, pencil and paper. Well. You know, I mean, those days really are gone. I mean, the advent of online banking has made budget keeping, bill paying a convenient, if not automatic, transaction for managing your finances. Of course, the problem with that is these transactions and information is now the target of millions of cyber criminals criminals out there. And not just the occasional thief who will steal your money out of the mailbox. I mean, they're they're all targeting you now. And according to a recent study by Fiserv, which is a big online uh, custodian, 80% of U.S. households now do their banking online. 80%. That's a big number. It is. Yeah, the sheer number of customers is a likely attraction for criminals. But what makes online banking irresistible prey for criminals is that the breach results in direct access to your money. No need to bother with a ransom or anything else. I mean, they got direct access to it. They can just transfer it straight out or, or you know, get a check coming to them. You know, and that's probably why more than 25% of malicious activity now online is aimed at financial institutions. Yeah, that's uh, it's happening daily now, it seems like. It is all over the place. I mean, you hear about it every single day, it seems like. Yeah, mobile banking, though, has a, a tighter ecosystem than the desktop online banking and some technical advantages that improve security. According to Seth Goldstein, who's a certified information systems security professional, that's a mouthful. <laughs> However, the mobile banking, though, isn't foolproof either. In 2016, so far, Malwarebytes, uh, virus protection service, they have flagged more than 12,000 unique Android application packages for for their mobile phones as banker Trojans. Hmm. Um, which, you know, God, so that they, those apps you're downloading to your mobile phone. If may it's not an Android, be real. They may not be real. They may could just be Trojans. And I think that's particularly true for Android devices. So you really have to be careful about that. So question is, you know, how do cyber criminals, crooks, steal your cash and 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of different ways from social media scams to, to fake apps like you talked about. There's really no method that crooks won't try to get your money. And, you know, the most common techniques center on fooling you into a sense of security, maybe by pretending to be your bank. I mean, whether that's in the form of a phishing email uh, that copies the logos of your financial institution or maybe spoofing your, your mobile banking app, criminals have become adept at pulling the wool over the eyes of a lot of online bankers who are now just accustomed to receiving digital communications from their banks and smishing um, which is sending malicious text messages has been a popular attack method for years and that lures customers into entering their credentials uh, via text so man you got to be really careful with this stuff you do. I mean, I, we see these all the time. I get emails all the time that oh, have, yeah. that look like you know Bank of America or some other bank on there, and and you know they're just guessing, but yet they hit on a bank account that you might have. Sure, you know, and so you have to be really really careful. And they look very official. Well, in 2014, several thousand J.P. Morgan mobile customers got a text message containing a link to this phony login screen. So they they do it with text messages as well. You have to be careful with all sorts of communication. But with so many susceptible susceptibilities in both the desktop and the mobile online banking, it's important not only to choose a bank uh, that offers the high-level protection in your accounts, but also take your own initiative to keep those accounts secure. So here are 12 steps for protecting your money online. But first, we're going to look at the financial institutions themselves. You know, look for the top-level security measures. So these first five here relate to the banks that you choose yeah the first one here is having a two-factor authentication um you know these days a strong password's not enough i mean the safest banks offer multi-step login processes that require you know both something you know like a password or a security question and something that you have like a phone which you may receive a text message and a second code that you'll need to gain access so making sure you have two factors in order to get into your account yeah so you want to look for that in the bank that you choose another thing that banks almost always use, but you want to make sure you're on the right website because an SSL-secured website is the type that the bank, a real bank will use. On any real website where a financial transaction takes place, secure communication is the key, and it, and it should be there. So you need to look for this. Look for the padlock icon in the upper left of the URL. If that isn't there, that means the information passed between your bank server and your browser remains private if it is there. If it's not there, then it may be a spoof website, so you need to be really careful. Also look for the HTTPS and not just the HTTP in the URL uh, address. So that was number two. Next one here you want to look for is the automatic timeout sessions. Banks that, that close your session after a few minutes of inactivity, they protect you from the prying eyes and just from human error. I mean, so it's better to have to log back in after a few minutes than to have someone swipe your account numbers while you're in the bathroom taking a break or if you forget to log out. So you definitely want to look for that. So we'll continue these when we come back from the break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or you can give us a call. Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome 
Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about the 12 ways to protect your money online. John, you know, I mean, people are, are, are doing more and more online. They're doing almost everything online in a lot of cases yeah. when, it deals, when it deals with their money. Some people deposit their checks online. Mm-hmm. You know, they just take a picture and... And I think you just go on the website and you I just actually like do scan that. it. I, yep. have a, I have an app, and yeah. um, I can take a picture of it and sign it, and it's, it shows up like an hour later. There you go. Yeah, Kath, Kathy does that too. And mm-hmm. so it's gotten to where people don't even go into the bank branches anymore, and that's a whole other discussion what banks are going to do about that because mm-hmm. they're, they're starting to kind of become obsolete in a lot of cases. But um, – but you know you have to you have to be vigilant to protect your money when you're online and now there's all these mobile apps we just talked about the fact that that there are uh, a lot of uh, Trojan horse mm-hmm. mobile apps out mm-hmm. there for Android applications over twelve thousand according to malware bytes. So that's one way criminals are trying to get to you. Another way they're trying to get to you is through the bank application itself. Like you mentioned, they send out these phishing emails, try to get you to log in and put in your credentials, tell you that you're checking, you know, upgrading their security, and they need you to to check that your your security question or something like that. So the things you want to look for in a financial institution that we just talked about, one of them was two-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that there's more than just one way they verify your identity whenever you log in um, and it can be the security questions you know it can be your phone number um, you know they might have the 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 some of them have like a picture on the login screen they that have you to have verify. to verify. Right. Exactly. Another one is you want to make sure the website's using secured communication, secured website. So you look for the padlock in the upper uh, left-hand corner of the URL, and that tells you it's a secure connection. And then you also want to look for the automatic timeout sessions when you choose a bank. I mean, you and you want to make sure you, if there's a setting for that, you set it at a reasonable time limit of just a couple minutes, you know, that it's not real long and they automatically log out. Otherwise, I mean, if you forget to log out Mm -hmm. and you get up and go get a cup of coffee or something, somebody could easily look over, you know, and and get your bank information. Or if somebody steals your computer and it stays logged in, um, you know, that's a real threat to to, – to your login information. So those are the first three, and we're continuing on here with the next one. Yeah, another security measure you want to make sure um, your financial institution had is fraud monitoring. I mean, any bank worth trusting with your money, they should have continuous real-time monitoring for fraudulent activities such as large withdrawals or purchases made in new locations. And I know a lot of that's automated now. I've had uh, companies call me up before and say, hey, are you in uh, California? And I'm like, "Uh, no, I'm not. So, um, you know, they do have fraud monitoring on a lot of places, which is good. And another one here on the list is mobile password protection. And this is like fingerprint scanning. And this is a twist on the two-factor authentication right out of the spy movie. Uh, many mobile banking apps offer fingerprint scanning as an additional method of verification. And, you know, the safest banking apps also require that phones be password protected if fingerprint scanning is to be used. So make sure you pass prote- password protect your phone in case it's stolen or lost. And I think we've heard of those situations where even, you know, the FBI couldn't crack into some of the phones, like the Apple phones, because that's true. it's pretty um, secure. Yeah, it is. So that's great. I like the fingerprint scanning method as another, you know, authentication method. 
Um, so how do you protect your accounts, though? What part can you take, you know, beyond what your bank does? So the second part about this is all about education and actions. I mean, once you've found the bank that you can pull all of your online transaction security stops in uh, with, you know, it's your turn to step up your game. The uh, Digital Forensics and Incident Response Group published a poster a couple years ago with the catchphrase, no normal, find evil. <laughs> and that should be the mantra they point out here for online mobile banking users. You take the precautionary measures to understand what is normal communication from your bank, what looks, what is suspicious, and then what you can do to ward off the, the malware attacks. So, yes, that means remembering... You know, to look at those silly security pictures that come up on your on your uh, login screen and remembering that and remembering to look for it when you log in. Um, so you got to do all those things. So number six here on the list, though, is to beware of phishing emails and text. You got to keep a sharp eye on email and text communications from your bank. Unless absolutely certain of an email or text origin, don't click on the links, especially if you're asked for login or other personal identification information. Your bank will not ask for that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good one, Steve. Um, And that goes for the IRS and a lot of other institutions out there. They communicate in a specific way, so you got to know what that is. And number seven here is report suspicious activity right away. I mean, one of the most important benefits of the Internet and mobile banking is the convenience for users to check their balances frequently. I mean, you know, if you, customers, you know, if you follow Follow your account activity. Um, you can quickly identify and report abuse, and it's much easier for banks to research and take action on recent transactions. And it gives you the best leverage to recover any losses if there are any. So, you know, if your bank offers security alerts, which email or text you when some you know unusual transaction is made, make sure you take advantage of that. And set it up so you'll be on top of kind of what's going on inside your account. That's a good one. Yeah, that is a good one. The next here on the list, though, is to make sure you download the official app from your bank okay i mean whether you're downloading from the google play or the app store be sure to check reviews read summaries carefully double triple check who and where the app comes from because like we said before there are a lot of fake apps out there they're nothing more than trojan horses so if it has a bunch of you know if it has hundreds and hundreds of positive reviews that might be a good sign that it's the official app you know or you can go directly to their website and download the app itself and if possible don't use a public computer or a public wi-fi for banking i'd say more than if possible absolutely just don't do it yeah i mean if you don't have internet access at home make sure you sign out of your account um, before you close the browser and if you're sitting in a cafe working on your blog um, that's not the best time to catch up on paying bills. You know, public Wi-Fi is much easier to breach um, than your own password-protected home com- connection. And if you are in a public place and you have to check your bank account for something, use your cell phone and use the cell phone service itself, mm-hmm. data. Don't log into a public Wi-Fi system for it. I've been told by experts that is much more safe hmm. than that's public Wi-Fi. Here's a good one. Buy a computer just for bills. For So for those of 
that are willing and able purchasing a laptop that, that's dedicated only to financial transactions. It'll help limit the potential for infection and breach. And um, that means online banking and bill paying only. So if you have a separate computer, don't check that email. Don't surf on the web. No social media. You know, start up, check accounts, and then shut down very quickly. So uh, that's an interesting. I've heard Clark Power talk about that before. That's a good yeah, idea. I mean, they're getting a lot cheaper, and you just keep it very, very clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then also customizing online banking transactions. I mean, take a look at the admin controls on your online banking accounts. I mean, some banks let you limit um, online transaction capabilities, like maybe international wire transfer. I mean, the less you do online, um, you know, without hindering you know your convenience factor, the safer your money is going to be. So set some controls on your banking transactions. Yeah, that's good. And the last one here is to layer your security. The more the merrier. Firewall, antivirus, that can stop the known threats, while anti-malware and anti-exploit, they cover advanced threats like malvertising and ransomware. Um, And to protect against those malicious mobile banking apps, consider an anti-malware program for your phone which I never even knew that existed. So that's that's a good one. So for the safest online banking experience, it's best if you live by the credo, know thyself, and by keeping an eye on online accounts and credit scores, you can stay on top of abuse. Secondly, know thy adversary. Your bank doesn't ask you to confirm account details via email or call you for personal information. So be careful there. There is no urgent matter that requires you to verify your responses to secret questions or sharing your CC, your CVV code on your back of your card to prove your identity. Simply put, if you're asked to share any account information in any way, don't. And if you don't want to pay it forward, if you if you want to pay it forward, notify your bank's call center when you receive these kind of suspicious communications. It might just help someone else protect their online banker as well. Yeah, I had a conversation with a client recently, and they, um, I think they clicked on an email or something that that basically hit a big warning screen came up and said, you know, your computer has been affected by a virus. Um, call this number, you know, and they'll be able to help you. And so she called up the number, and oh, they tried to pressure her to do something, and um, she didn't. She she sat back. She said, I need to talk to my husband about it, um, and he called and got involved in it and so forth. And it turned out to be, a, you know, they were fishing. Trying, sure. trying to take control of the computer to go and get whatever codes they were going to get. So you got to be really, really careful. You have to almost, um, anytime you get emails, phone calls, most people communicate through letters. That's that's the way the IRS is going to communicate with you. So just always, almost, I hate to say it, but go negative and, and, and question everything that someone's asking you. Yeah, I think that's the key. You have to be suspicious of almost everything. Which is sad. Which is sad. I mean, it's kind of a jaded way to live the world, but unfortunately, that's the world we live in. So you just got to be very vigilant and very careful and and don't just jump to conclusions when you get an email or text or a phone call asking for information. So, okay, very important topic. That leads us up to our break, though. If you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you could call us at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages and Gina News. Stay with us. Welcome back. 
back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider. And we are going to lead off our next segment here with the question of the week. Yeah, this question, um, we get pretty frequently about taxes and what is the best way to lower my tax bill and we were just talking at the break well the best way to lower it is to have no income yeah if you had well i think you could get down to maybe ten thousand yeah and right. probably You'd pay have you, no yeah. taxes and standard get some. deduction exemption for a married couple actually is about twenty thousand yeah. so if you're if you're below 20 in Minimum gross income bill. you'd pay zero but that's not a viable solution for most people so no you know there's unfortunately not a tremendous amount of um, tax havens uh, the best one probably is 401k i mean you could put eighteen thousand in there per spouse if you're working both of you are working under the age of 50 and up to twenty four thousand over 50 so that's a lot of money that saves you a pretty good amount on taxes if you can do that um, another option is uh, roth iras that'll save you taxes in the future that's so right not today so Tax free yeah so hsa accounts i love hsa accounts. yes hsa is the only account that you get a tax break on the front end and, and you don't, it's tax free that's right it, it's better than a roth actually it's better both yeah it's so a, if you it's can a, it's an ira and a roth combined that's right so if you can do an hsa and not spend that money um save it up you can put up to like you know, sixty seven, sixty eight hundred bucks per family, family per year. Do that for you know ten, fifteen years. You'll have a, a lot of money. Now you can't use that for golf vacations. Uh, well, Steve, you got to use it I for medical. I mean, that that may be for medicinal purposes for me, John. Yeah, that conversation with the old IRS. Maybe I can say it's for mental health. There you go. Yeah, That's yeah. it. So yeah. anyway, there's there's different ways to do it. We certainly recommend talking to CPAs. I had a meeting with a, a client and their CPA this last week, and we kind of went through some different ideas. But those are the those are the main ones. That's right, mainly retirement accounts and that kind of stuff. But so there's not a lot of tax havens out there where you can just uh, you know get big tax credits for buying something. And if you do, then I'd be suspicious of tax credits quite honestly, because they're usually terrible investments, mm-hmm. like low-income housing, you know, things like that. But, hey, you still got the solar tax credits and things sure. like that. So there's a few things out there. So, yep, talk to your CPA. That's a good question of the week. All right, and that leads us up to our, our next topic here, and that is the money habits that help you become wealthier. Um, yeah, I mean, these are the habits of the millionaire next door. You want to... You you want to you want to pay attention to these? Yeah, no doubt. This comes from Marketing Pro, and um, you know, Steve, why do some households tread water financially while others make progress? I mean, you know, some people would say, well, it's because they make more income. Well, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, we see situations where people make, uh, you know, very moderate amount of income, and they do very very well, and you know. It, comes down to habits comes down to your thought processes that's why we're such big proponents of dave ramsey and his processes it's habits and processes and you know sometimes the difference starts with the habits i mean a household that prioritizes paying itself first may end up in a much better financial shape in the long run than other households so you know some families see themselves as savers Others, you know, as spenders. So the spenders may enjoy, you know, some goods now and some affluence now, but they're also maybe setting themselves up for financial struggles down the road. So the savers uh, better position themselves for financial emergencies and the creation of wealth. So if you don't have, you know, an emergency fund, the next place that you're going to go is your 401k, and then that starts to impact your retirement. So you got to think about saving as a as a key habit. So you got to be a saver. So how does a family build up savings? Well, you know, money not spent can be money saved. 
that should be obvious, but some households take the, a long time to grasp that, that obvious truth. In psychology of spenders, money unspent is money unappreciated, according <laughs> to the spenders out there. Yeah, and, and less spending means less fun, so they think, but that doesn't have to be true. So you you got you to gotta think the right way about money. That's yeah. really what boils down yeah, to. Yeah, actually, um, less spending typically means more fun. It's just I the think, opposite. I think that's right. That's right. It means yeah. you can you can spend the money that you spend carefree because you, you, right. you know, guilt-free yeah, you can it's feel, in your budget. You can be at peace with it. So that's a really good one. Another one here is being a saver doesn't necessarily mean that you're a miser. I mean, it simply means dedicating a percentage of household income to future goals and needs rather than current wants. I like that. That's a good way of looking at it. That is. Taking a piece of it for the future versus spending everything now. And, you know, you could argue that it's harder than ever for households to save consistently, yet it happens. As of May, uh, U.S. households were saving uh, a little bit over 5% of their disposable personal income, and that was up uh, from about 4.8% a year. So, you know, and when it's when it's five percent, that means that some people are saving ten and twelve, and many, many, many people are saving zero. That's right. right. So that's an average. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, going. I remember just going back to your previous comment about, you know, it doesn't mean you have to be a miser. I remember my I had an aunt that would always refer to me as cheap. Because you know, I would save money whenever I was a kid, and uh, she was she was not very much older than me, so she was a young aunt. And uh, it's funny because today she comes up to me and she says, "Well, Stephen, you sure got it right because you know you have money and I don't. I like, You're ready for retirement. I'm not. I like to think frugal is a better, more positive exactly, term. Exactly, so. exactly. I was very frugal, and now she's jealous of me. She doesn't call <laughs> me cheap anymore because I I get to spend a lot more money than she does. Yeah, so it's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I mean, budgeting is a great habit. So what percentage of U.S. households maintains a budget? Pollsters really ought to ask that question more often. In 2013, the Gallup poll uh, posed that question to Americans and found the answer was only 32%. Hmm. And only 39% of households earning more than $75,000 a year bothered to budget. Another interesting factoid from the survey was just 30% of Americans had a long-term, long-run financial plan. Um, so, so often, I mean, budgeting begins <clears throat> with the response to a financial crisis. Ideally, though, budgeting is supposed to be a proactive measure, not reactive. So instead of being about damage control, you need to be about <clears throat> monthly progress. Mm-hmm. So you need to have a budget. Don't be like the the... You know, the 40, 60% of people out there that don't have a budget. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a big number. It's a huge number. It really is. That's a, that's tr- that's a troubling statistic. And, you know, Steve, budgeting also includes planning for major pur- purchases. I mean, a household that, that creates a plan to buy a big-ticket item may approach that purchase with less ambiguity and less potential for financial surprise. So maybe it's a vacation. Maybe it's, a, um, you know, a car, things like that. You can set aside... Uh, different buckets of money and, and work towards that. It is a very rewarding exercise. So budgets, that's key. You guys know we talk about that a lot with the Dave Ramsey uh, processes in place as well. So another one here is keeping consumer debt low. It's a great habit. I mean, a household that uses credit cards
cards like cash may find itself living on margin, that is, living on the edge of financial instability. And when people habitually use other people's money to buy things, I mean, they run into three problems. I mean, one, they start carrying a great deal of revolving consumer debt, which may take years to eliminate. We see the interest rates on those. I mean, I've seen 25 30% routinely oh, on these brutal. credit cards. I mean, it, that is so hard to overcome. So uh, number two here is they set themselves up to live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, they can't get ahead. They're always paying someone else. And the third one here on the list is they hurt their potential to build equity and build wealth. And no one chooses to be poor, but living this way is as close to a choice as a household could make. So make sure you keep your debt low and try to get out of it, run as fast as you can away from it, because if you do, you can start building wealth. Okay, and the next great habit here is investing for retirement. That is a great habit. I mean, speaking of equity, automatically contributing to employer-sponsored retirement accounts, IRAs, or other options that allow your chance, your savings to grow through the stock market are great habits to develop. So you want it to be automatic. You want it to just come out of your paycheck or to come out of your bank account and, and go straight into your investments. Yeah, smart households, that's what they do. And they also invest with diversification. They recognize that directing most of their investment assets into one or two asset classes heightens their exposure to risk. So they invest in a way that their portfolio includes both conservative and more aggressive investment vehicles, and it's diversified across a lot of different asset classes. Another thing to consider is taxes and fees. They can eat into your investments over time. So smart families, they study what to do about that, how they can reduce those negative effects, how they can reduce taxes, how they can cut down on fees, and that effectively improves their returns over time. So that's what smart people do with their investments. Yeah, that's right. And, and the last one here is long-term planning is a good habit. I mean, many people invest with the goal of making money, but they never define what money they make will be used to accomplish. I mean, what are, what are your goals? So wise households consult, um, you know, may consult a financial professional to help set those long-range objectives. You know, they want to accumulate X amount of dollars for retirement, for, for elder care, college educations, the list goes on and on and on. And the very presence of such long-term goals, it reinforces their long-term commitment to saving and investing. And so, you know, Steve, I mean, we talk a lot about, um, you know, budgeting and planning and so forth, and it really is a cornerstone of becoming wealthier. And um, if you stick through the break, we're going to come back with our prescription of the week and give you a great next step to help you meet some of these goals. Exactly. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider. And we are going to start off our last segment here with the prescription of the week. And here it is. Go to DaveRamsey.com, click on classes up at the top there, and check out where the next Financial Peace University FPU class is going to be held and go to one of them. Because that's where you're really going to change the way you think about money. And it's about a nine-week class. And 
you know, it is just a great way to change the way you think about money and to get these habits of you know, wealthy people ingrained in in your psyche and the way you, you behave. Yeah, you can key your zip code in wherever you live in the CSRA, or for that matter, they hold them all over the nation, and you can see where the classes are held. Typically, they hold at churches, but sometimes they'll be held at a you know community college or so forth. But uh, go check that out. It is a it's a life changing event. It really is. It's um, you'll walk out of there with a PhD in finance. It is that good. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. So that's the prescription of the week, and that leads up to our final topic here, and that is pension buyout offers. Do you take the money and run? Cue a little Steve Miller band. So is that the answer? No, that's not the answer, John, but it is a great song, isn't it? I like it. I like that stuff. Yeah, I mean, not necessarily. You might take the money and run, but you've got to look at the details. Yeah, there are pros and cons to both. Yeah, there are. There are. You've got to be careful here. The point is it's really careful. I mean, carefully consider the terms of the deal, you know, your your pension, personal situation before you make these important decisions. So, you know, no doubt the letter arrived unexpectedly. By the way, this is an article that we're basing this on out of uh, Howard Bailey Financial Times. And, uh, you know, a company that you want to work for maybe had an extraordinary proposal for you. You're due a monthly pension when you hit retirement age, but the company is offering to buy that out for a hefty lump sum right now instead of your pension. So if you do nothing, of course, your pension situation continues as it is, and you'll get the pension at age 65 or whatever age it's it's projected to start. But if you accept the buyout, you'll have a large chunk of money to invest for retirement right then that you can get your greedy hands on. (laughs) (laughs) You have to be careful. Yeah, I mean, you can no longer expect to get that monthly check that they had promised you when you retire. That's the downside of it. Um, So suddenly you have major financial decision to make that could have a significant impact on your retirement. I know a lot of folks, University Hospital just had to make this decision and it, it comes it happens all the time. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, initially you may be puzzled about, you know, why would your company who you once worked with for or maybe you're still working is so interested in buying out your p- pension? One reason is is interest rates are extremely low. I mean, many of these pensions had anticipated that interest rates would be higher and that the money in the pension fund would be grower, growing at a faster pace. And these pension funds invest in equities and bonds just like you may do in your 401k or maybe your IRAs. And according to um, Milliman, a um, 100 pension funding index as of uh, April, the 100 largest corporate defined benefit pension plans funding status, it dropped by $25 billion and that leaves them about 25% underfunded. So, you know, with projected rates of return of more than 7% in order to succeed, you might see how this can become a problem. And, you know, not to mention, Steve, people are, are, are living longer. I mean, that's great for you and I, but it also means extra years of monthly payments that the pension folks had not counted on, and it's really stressing the system. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a liability to companies nowadays with these pension lo- obligations out there, and that combination has led most companies to try to to get out of the pension game as quickly as possible. 
And if every pensioner stays in the plan, they're they're probably in trouble. So they need to cut some cost and cut some liability. And that's the reason why they're sending out these lump sum offers to buy out your pension. So what do you do when that lump sum offer arrives? Well, first thing is you want to you want to sit down with a trusted advisor who can provide you with some information and a good consultation because there's no one-size-fits-all solution for everyone here. I mean, there are a lot of things to consider here, specific terms of the deal, um, your individual situation that both play a role in whether you should accept the lump sum or hold steady to and wait for that monthly pension check down the road. One of the most important things that an advisor can do is to provide you the facts so that you can make uh, an informed decision on your own. You know, if an advisor simply sits down with you and tells you what you need to do, they aren't really doing their job. So, you know, look for somebody that's going to be objective and it's going to give you all the facts, um, which should be to empower you to make your own decision. Otherwise, I mean, those interests... You know, whose interests are they looking out for? Maybe their own. So you want to be a little bit careful, but you want to sit down with somebody you trust that can lay all the information sure. out to you. Yeah, and I know we go through pros and cons. Um, there's there's good and bad things to both choices, and it's got to fit your situation. And, and uh, you know, you have to look at um, the numbers. And so take this example. Suppose your pension is set to be about $2,000 per month. And it may not sound like a lot, but it comes out to 24000 a year. And over 25 years of retirement, that's close to $600,000. So, you know, if you were going to take an annual withdrawal from your retirement savings, you would need close to $400,000 at a 4% annual rate to match that pension over 25 years. So that's a very big number that they're willing to give you. So, you know, you need to take that kind of information into consideration as you weigh your decision. You know, is the lump sum large enough? Uh, Can it grow enough to provide you a similar annual return to those monthly pension payments? Um, You know, if it's going to take 8 to 10% return on the lump sum to give you that cash flow that's equal to the pension payments, um, then you'll likely want to stick with the pension. I mean, on the other hand, if a low rate of return could provide you that same cash flow, then you know you may want to go um, with a lump sum. And every pension from these companies are different. They have different assumptions. I've seen some as high as you know eight, eight to nine percent, and uh, I've seen some as low as three percent. So yep. it just really depends on what they're offering you. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and, and something else to factor into it is your life expectancy. I mean, you can outlive a lump sum, but you don't outlive a pension. So at the same time, you can't bequeath a pension payment to your children, most likely, but you could leave the money from a lump sum that's left over to your spouse or to your children. So for many people, the right answer may be to take the lump sum, put it in an annuity with some kind of guaranteed life benefit, or, or to take the lump sum and invest it themselves, you know, and at a better rate of return is another good option. Um, you know, so there are lots of options out there, uh, but you have to be careful about that. I mean, one thing also you want to consider, John, is is whether or not you have the discipline to leave the, the money alone. Mm-hmm. You know, if you take a lump sum, you need to be able to invest it wisely, diversify it, but then not dip into it and spend it all. Because, you know, if you want it to last the rest of your life, you got to have some discipline associated with that. So that's another consideration for you is just your your spending habits and whether you have the discipline to invest it wisely. But if you do, it certainly can uh, grow and it can it can significantly outperform what a pension payment would do for you. 
So, yeah, and regardless of, uh, you know, when you're offered a lump sum, it's your responsibility to educate yourself about your options, evaluate your goals. And again, like you said, you know, sitting down with a, a trusted advisor may be a good step for you. Um, here are some good questions to ask yourself, though, before making your decision. Uh, you know, do you have an emergency fund in case of the unexpected? And how much income will I need to protect my spouse in case uh, of death? Um, do I need, you know, any more income from my investments? And, you know, another one is do I need income now or later? So you've got to go through a series of questions. You've got some other things about, you know, the the, the uh, company itself, right? Yeah, you got to think about whether the, the pension is, is stable, you know. Do, are there any concerns over the strength of your pension and in the company itself? Do you, do, do you care what is left behind for your children or for charity? And, you know, the most difficult question is how long will you live? That's another factor. And then, as I mentioned before, you got to consider whether you have the discipline to invest it wisely and leave it alone, yeah. you know, and put it in the stock market. If you're just going to stick it in a bank account, then, you know, the pension's probably going to give you a better return. Or if you're going to spend it all out, and we see people that sometimes do that will just just can't leave their hands off of it. Mm-hmm. And if you start spending it all out and you run out of money in 20 years and you still got more life left at the end of your money, that's a problem, too. Yeah, know? it is. So when we sit down and talk about this, Steve, and I know you you, um, you and I do similar approaches, there's there's really two answers to these questions. One of them is a, is a financial answer. We can do the calculation and kind of figure out what the rate of return is. The other one is, a, is an emotional, psychological answer. You start talking about do you do you, um, you know, want guarantees? That's a piece of the puzzle. Uh, do you want the possibility of money being left over for your kids? Um, some people like to go ahead and take it and control it. Um, so there's a lot of different factors that you have to look at. One piece of the puzzle is trying to figure out, is it a good deal from a financial standpoint? But then right. the other piece of it is, is does this make sense for my situation and what I'm looking for? Exactly. I mean, you may not need the pension whenever it comes up. So maybe you want to keep the money for your kids and it's more of an estate issue for you. And you want to, you want to, you want to keep that money in your family. So, you know, obviously the lump sum would enable you to do that. The pension doesn't. So. Yeah. So that's uh, that's a great question. But either way, you know, you may want to take the money and run. Or maybe not. You may not. You may not. So make a wise decision about that. You like that song, don't I you? I do. That's a great song. But uh, speaking of songs, that leads us up to the end of our uh, the MoneyMD show for today. If you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. To hear more prescriptions for your financial health, do check us on our website, moneymd.net, and uh, give us a call if you have questions as well. Richard Young Associates, 706 739 Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Ladies and gentlemen. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contact. Contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIBC.